It's time for Cadillac on Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac on Call, here's Jim Hall. Hello and welcome to Cadillac on Call presented by the Cadillac Foundation. We have a busy program for you today and a timely program. You've likely heard about the rising incidence of a virus named RSV an illness that is taking a particular toll on children. We'll get the latest on what families need to know to protect their children and themselves, plus a visit with a hospital-based pediatric specialist to learn how RSV is impacting local hospitals. And later in our program, what do you think our community's most pressing health care needs are? We'll tell you with leaders of a recently completed community health needs assessment. First, it's RSV with Heather Hill of the Communicable Disease Program Manager at the Benton Franklin Health District. And Heather, we visited about RSV a couple of weeks ago when we started hearing about the high numbers of cases in other parts of the country. And now, earlier this week, I know Western Washington has been reporting concerning numbers of RSV among children. What can you tell us today about the RSV situation in our area? Well, as predicted, Jim, we look to other parts of the country to see what's going to happen here. And like you said, the western side of the state is starting to see some pretty significant surges. You know, according to the Hospital Association of Washington, these surges are very significant on the west side and certainly straining um, the acute care system. So what we would expect is this side of the state tends to lag by a couple of weeks And as I look at data, it is definitely showing an upward trend. We had our first major spike of of data come in, showing us kind of over this past weekend, things started to really surge up. And checking the data today, it is continuing on in an upward trend. Um, I think it's really important for the public to understand that both RSV and influenza, which we're watching very closely this time of year, are not reportable conditions, so we don't get case numbers. If you test positive for RSV, it is not reported to us. So we rely on a system called Essence, and that is where all four hospitals in our region have voluntarily put data into the system on many, many reasons for hospitalization or visits to the ED. So we're watching that system to see what is trending in the Tri-Cities area. And again, it's data from all four hospitals. So it gives us a good cross-section of our community as to what is showing up in our EDs, how much RSV, how much flu is showing up there, and how many of these people are needing hospitalization. And through that system, we're able to say, yes, definitely we are starting to see that surge that we've been so concerned would happen. And is it is it a case of pediatric cases, or is it just all across the age spectrum? You know, RSV, this go-around, we're seeing it kind of across the age spectrum, but it really is affecting that pediatric population quite significantly. Most children are exposed to RSV early in life, and then they have some residual immunity, so it doesn't become problematic later on. But what happened during COVID with all of our mitigation strategies in place We saw both influenza and RSV at pretty low rates. So now we have a group of children who may have been exposed at, you know, two, three, four years old, 
are now hitting that school age, kindergarten age, and we're starting to see some pretty severe illness in that population. And that's what's concerning. On top of the fact that all across the nation, there is a shortage of medical personnel. And I know this will be brought out in the later half, but one of our concerns in our community is lack of access to medical care and our our physician shortage in our community, our medical provider shortage in our community does make it difficult for families to get into the provider in a timely manner. Um, We certainly encourage families not to rush to the ED if, if the child's illness can be handled at a medical provider office or a walk-in clinic. But we also understand in the Tri-Cities area, it can be very difficult to access provider care for your child. You, you mentioned the word seeing some severe cases. Does, what do you mean by severe? Does it mean that they're requiring hospitalization or it's just that they may not necessarily need to be hospitalized, but they're still pretty sick? We're seeing a surprising number of hospitalizations quite early in the season. We don't usually see RSV this severe, this, in this great in numbers this time of year. It's usually later in the winter. So it is surprising to us that we are seeing um, across the U.S. and definitely the West Side are starting to pick up in our community where ED visits are picking up for that that child, that pediatric population, and they are sick. And there is a surprising number of them that are requiring supportive care in a hospital acute care setting. Uh, It's important for parents to understand that if your child is using all their muscles just to breathe, they're turning blue, maybe the the fingertips or or definitely around the lips, they're feverish, it is really time that you do need to take your child in and get um, that specialized acute care that only a hospital can provide. Relative to, I know you touched on this and it's so reminiscent of when we were going through the COVID pandemic. And that is when these viruses hit. And I think that's one thing we all learned about COVID, especially early on, was it doesn't just descend on everybody all at once. It does, as you say, move in these waves of geography. And is that what we're experiencing here again, that certainly Western Washington in this instance is um, seeing it much more strenuously before we are on this side of the state? Right, and that's that's exactly what we're seeing happening. We understand that Spokane has started to see a significant surge, and we fully expect to see our surge to pick up and to continue, especially with the holidays coming up. We know that families will be getting together, mixing to you know enjoy each other's company, but then they also pass a lot of infections back and forth as well. And it's important to remember that, yes, RSV is typically a childhood illness, but the elderly, the immunocompromised, they are at significant risk as well to have a bad outcome should they catch RSV. So once again, the message is if you're sick, stay home. Don't go around vulnerable people. Um, Keep your germs at home. Use those good strategies that we've talked about throughout the pandemic, and they're good for all respiratory illnesses. Cover your cough, don't touch your eyes, your nose, your mouth, sanitize surfaces, because RSV does stay on surfaces for quite a while um, alive. And so if you're touching things, you're sharing eating utensils, you're touching doorknobs, refrigerator handles, 
you know, toilet handles, all those high touch. You're passing your cell phone around. Great ways to also transmit respiratory viruses. There's one other data point that I wanted you to to ask you about, and I, this goes back to when we would interview you and talk with you back during flu uh, seasons of years past when, and, and that was uh, school absentee rates. And I think I, I want to say you used to share that it was, if you were seeing 10% absenteeism, that would raise that level or hit your level of concern at the health district. Are you seeing that kind of uh, activity at the schools at all? We're not hearing of high absentee rates right at this moment. We are hearing reports from a variety of schools saying, okay, we've just learned we've got kids with RSV. So we know it's in the schools. We know kids are, this is expected, that kids will come to school, they'll end up sick, and they will have RSV. So we know the school environment is a great place to transmit, not only to their their fellow students, but again, also to the staff in those school districts. And, and again, that vulnerable staff person who needs to be protected a little bit more, we need to take you know caution to uh, keep our kids home when they're sick. Don't send them to school sick. One final question, and, and you touched on this a little bit, is is, it, is so you, normally we would see RSV at this time of the year with the flu and uh, going into the wintertime. Is it is it the, the, the fact that these, uh, because of the, the COVID effects of not being the, the, the exposure, uh, makes, the, makes the situation differently now? Or is it a case that we are seeing actually more RSV cases than we normally would? When I look back at the data, our last big spike of RSV was in about January of 2019. And then we, we really didn't see a lot of spikes through the pandemic, we certainly saw um, RSV. It was there, and we saw the data. But we're seeing it a lot earlier this year, and it is spiking high quite a bit earlier this year than we would have expected looking at past data. So the advice then, dust off the old COVID mitigation strategies about uh, hand hygiene and the like, and uh, that'll help uh, mitigate this as best as possible. Heather Hill with the Benjamin Frank, (laughs) that's the advice? Yep. <laughs> Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. And again, the Health District has very robust information on its website at bfhd.wa.gov. You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Cadillac on Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. And Heather Hill, in our first segment, touched on the RSV virus that is with us as the cold and flu season arrives and as the holiday seasons now draw near. It is especially impacting children, which can present serious health concerns for parents. So we wanted to get a pediatric expert's perspective, and we're happy to welcome to our program Dr. Lauren Malone, a pediatric hospital specialist at Cadillac Regional Medical Center. And I know Cadillac, Dr. Malone, is seeing rising numbers of RSV cases among children, as I guess all other hospitals in our region are. When it comes to that, what do parents need to know about this virus? Yeah, the you know the biggest thing is this can affect uh, children's breathing as and uh, hydration status. Those are probably the two main reasons children end up getting admitted to the hospital is usually 
um, significant work of breathing, need for oxygen and dehydration. So those are those are kind of the big things to watch for, especially um, as we move forward. And um, you know, warning parents about the risks, uh, especially with the holidays coming of. Um, how this virus is spread and being really diligent about avoiding, you know, face sick people being in contact with babies, especially and children less than two are the, the ones highest at risk at this point. You touched on a term, I think, did you call it worker breathing? Can you explain what exactly that is? Sure. The, um, the, um, when children are, when their lungs are sick, they use lots of muscles to um, to breathe and they they look abnormal. So you'll see their ribs will sink in. Um, sometimes their bellies will move a lot. Their abdomen will move a lot. Um, sometimes their nose can have a little bit of flaring. They may make noises, abnormal noises when they're breathing. Um, those things can all uh, be signs that the child is having uh, increased work of breathing, so using more muscles to breathe than normal. Interesting. And so that's certainly something that, that parents uh, should be aware of and, and keep an eye on if, if they suspect that their, their children are starting to do it. Is that, you know, and the other issue, we're talking about flu, we talk about COVID, and I understand the symptoms aren't all that different. Correct. Yeah, they they look very similar. It's hard to tell the difference between any of those viruses really without a test. Um, and so, yes, the symptoms do look very, very similar. One of the things, though, in babies, especially in younger children, they usually breathe out of their nose. And so when their noses are stopped up, all that work of breathing gets a lot worse, too. So concentration especially at home of saline and suctioning of the of the nose can be really helpful especially with eating and and it can also help that work of breathing um, to be better but certainly something to watch for at home if you could could you take a moment and, and explain the age groups by what you mean what age groups are we talking about and maybe walk us through why we're seeing this uh, at this particular year as opposed to past years so typically, um, in, in previous years, the hosp- number of hospitalized patients tended to be um, the highest number were less than six months of age. This uh, season, and likely because of children's lack of exposure in the last couple of years due to you know, the COVID-19, we haven't expose these children to these viruses. And typically, the first round of RSV, the first infection of RSV, um, usually is the worst. So um, this year, the children most affected typically are less than two years of age. And of course, anyone that has other medical conditions, the premature babies, um, those are all going to be asthma patients. Um, Those will all be at risk. But usually the hospitalized patients tend to be less than two years of age. Um, the severity, the younger they are, the more severe usually um, the virus can be. So um, that's definitely been a change. Typically, the, the one to two year olds have had it uh, one or two times by the time they're that age. Um, but the, the, just because we've been masking and diligent hand washing, and um, these children just have not been exposed. So we're seeing it a little bit more severe in the older kids. And, and by older kids, I mean the one to two year age group. Now, the old, um, 
seeing it into the three, four-year-olds, that tends to be more of co-infections and um, children with so asthma and allergies, those type of symptoms. So with that and with somebody that requires hospitalizations, walk us through real quickly, or if you would, just what would what would that hospital stay look like and what what would they expect as far as a length of stay in most cases? Yeah, it's really hard to um, know exactly how long the length of stay is. It can be highly variable. Typically, um, when they come in, it's usually around the third, fourth, and fifth day is kind of the progression. We have seen some children sicker into the sixth and seventh day. But right around that period tends to be the peak of illness. And so depending on if they need oxygen or um, if it's a dehydration-related, those sort of things can make a stay longer or shorter. So certainly requiring oxygen tends to um, keep children a little bit longer. But typically only two or three, maybe four days, depending on severity, um, they will stay in the hospital and some children as short as one or two days and other children as long as a couple of weeks and even requiring higher level of care than we have here. So um, it's really highly variable um, and hard to predict as well. I can't always just tell in the first time you see the, the, the kiddo to know, Oh, well, it'll, it'll probably be two or three days, but the typical stay is usually a couple of days, um, depending on if they need oxygen or not. For for these young children that don't necessarily get to the point where it would require hospitalization, but they are still dealing with this virus, there's not, obviously, antibiotics that you can prescribe to them. It's more comfort measures. So they're going to still need to deal with this moms and dads uh, for for a few days. It's not something that comes and goes in just a matter of a couple of days. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these kids typically start with runny nose congestion, and then it it will move down into their lungs as sort of the progression. But certainly as the, as the week goes along, usually at, if they're still sick at around seven days, that would be pretty abnormal. But um, typically around three, four, five days um, is when they would, you will see the most symptoms typically. And, um, so yes, they will see it at home and it's hard for them to determine always this, this, is this normal enough? Is this not? So I always tell parents, just trust your gut. If you're worried, um, contact the pediatricians or bring them into the emergency department and, um, parents know these kids the best. And if it seems really off, then, uh, should have the kid evaluated, Certainly, if they're not um, eating and drinking, that's another, not necessarily eating, but certainly taking fluids in and and making uh, wet diapers, that is another sign and important thing for parents to watch for at home. Final question before we let you go in the the final minute, if you could, just with, uh, I know COVID, uh, the term contagiousness, uh, certainly with COVID and then with these, is is, is RSV highly contagious and something that... Again, that's why you're talking about these hand-washing and, and digging out the <laughs> the mitigation measures to, for uh, good hygiene. Yes, it is. And, and one thing about RSV is it can live for a long time on surfaces. So it's actually 
transmitted by contact. So, for example, if something if there's um, you know saliva on a toy, it can live for RSV can live there for six up to six hours and even longer. So, certainly lives on hands for up to thirty minutes. So the the very very contagious and it, and it typically the the other problem is that older kids and the adults tend to just maybe have a runny nose, and so they think oh I'm not sick, and that's how um, that's how the little babies tend to get it. So it is definitely very contagious, and um, everyone should be very diligent over the holidays for sure. Well, very timely advice from Dr. Lauren Malone, a pediatric hospital specialist with Catholic Regional Medical Center. Thanks so much for taking some time to share your perspective and your expertise. Great advice for all of us, especially as we head into the holiday season. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. And again, our thanks to Dr. Lauren Malone, a pediatric hospital specialist at Cadillac Regional Medical Center, sharing some important perspective on RSV that is impacting our community, our state, and our country at this time as we get ready to begin enjoying the holiday season. We want to shift gears a little bit and talk about an exercise that is done in our community every couple of years, and that's a look and assessing what the true community health needs are in our community. Obviously, the viruses that come and go, but what are the what are the ongoing, pressing, concerning needs that impact our community throughout Benton and Franklin counties. And every few years, uh, an assessment is done. It's called the Community Health Needs Assessment. And where a lot of healthcare partners in our region come together and gather data and assess data and develop a summary on what priorities to focus on in the coming years. And this Community Health Needs Assessment for this time of the year and this period of time is now out, and we're happy to welcome to our program Karen Hayes. She serves as the Community Health Program Manager at Cadillac, but she's also heavily involved in the effort to prepare our newest Community Health Needs Assessment, and Karen's with us for a couple of minutes tonight. Uh, Karen, before we get into really the details of what the outcomes were, but give our listeners a little idea of the how the data collection process works and what goes into preparing this document each time around. Well, good evening, Jim. So um, to collect data for the community health needs assessment, we do interviews with working partners and community collaborators. And this year we did 21 interviews um, conducted virtually in March with 33 different uh, working partners and community collaborators. We also do listening sessions, and those are um, group conversations, and they're with people with lived experience, people who are in the community utilizing community resources or in need of community resources. And for those this year, we did 10 listening sessions with 67 community members. And then I know and there's also, also surveys and things of that nature as well that are done. So uh, a full a full pronged approach to gather as much information as possible. Yes, absolutely. We did also conducted a community survey, and we had 657 respondents to that survey. 
And with that, I know this is a partnership uh, prepared by the Benton Franklin Health District, but there are people like organizations like Cadillac and the Community Health Alliance and Prosser's Hospital System, Prosser Memorial Health. And, and is that the whole idea is that you want partners? It's not just a health care issue. It's far beyond that, right? Absolutely. We're very, very fortunate in our community that um, each year we collaborate, Cadillac collaborates with the Benton Franklin Health District, the Benton Franklin Community Health Alliance, Prosser, and Prosser Memorial Health. And it's just a great um, committee that works together to uh, do the interviews, the listening sessions, and we certainly lean on the health district to uh, pull together all the quantitative data of which there is so much that was reviewed this year. And I know, and we won't, we'll, as uh, we'll get into in general the, the priorities, and I'm reading behavioral health, housing and homelessness, access to health. Heather Hill addressed that at the start of our program when trying to uh, talk about RSV and then community partnership development. I know in past it's that access has been one out there that's an, an ongoing concern, as is the uh, certainly access and then the behavioral health, right? Um, but these things change, uh, I guess, nuanced a little bit. There's still the, the key issues seem to be still the same. They are. They are. I'm really excited this year that what we did instead of just access to health care, it's access to health. So that goes beyond health and really is going to um, also include the things that contribute to health, such as um, food and good nutrition and transportation and, you know, so many things that um, are included, uh, community education about health, many, many things that go into how, how do you be a healthy community member. And so with these, and, and we'll get into a little more detail later in our program with a colleague of ours, Kirk Williamson, but I'd, these four major initiatives, I know that it's called a CHNA. There's another acronym called a CHIP, which is a Community Health Improvement Plan. Is that the next part of this, is that you start digging into these priorities on a little more detail and start addressing how they're going to be uh, discussed and, and addressed in the coming years? Absolutely. So the community health needs assessment identifies the collects the data and identifies of all the information we gathered, what are the true priority areas? And there's quite the discernment process on that. And then we need to develop an implementation plan. What are the the uh, strategies and goals that we are going to um, use to address those priority areas that have been identified. And, you know, we want to um, use our resources as effectively as possible and really target those need areas. How did, how did you think COVID affected the results of this and, and, and the outcomes uh, from this time, this assessment this time around? Yeah, I think that COVID exacerbated everything. You know, as you know, um, for the last many years, behavioral health and um, access to care and housing and homelessness have all been issues, but they're even more critical issues now with everything that has um, evolved with COVID. So with this Community Health Improvement Plan, that's the next phase of this. And then as as, uh, this three-year, they're done every three years, right, these health needs assessments? They are. 
and the idea being that uh, you over the course of that time you you hopefully develop these strategies and and to tackle these and and I'm looking at the the other one is housing and homelessness it, it, to me it seems it's interesting how they seem interconnected because you have behavioral health which can be impacted by folks that are homeless which can be uh, contribute to the challenges of getting access to health it's, so that's what you're talking about in this this synergy that we need to really uh, look at these closely absolutely and they you're right they are all so connected and you know access is access to everything access to health access to housing um, it's just all so critical and is that, I guess, final question or two, is that why it's so important to, you know, as you touched on, this isn't just a health care issue. So it's not up to the health district solely. It's not up to the hospital solely to, to try and determine these. Everybody that, I guess, has a, a hand in health, as you say, has a role to play. Oh, absolutely. We are going to be looking and we are looking to different um, organizations within the, commu- within the community, I mean, nonprofits and um, other organizations um, to really come together uh, way beyond uh, hospitals and the health districts to really tackle these issues. And is the plan as we move forward, there's continued opportunities for the public to get involved. So just stay tuned if, if you'd like to any of these priorities uh, and might have something to offer. Is that the idea is that you'd like to, to continue to have that dialogue with the community? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We're certainly going to be uh, offering plenty of opportunities. And I think um, coming very soon is going to be an opportunity to uh, participate in terms of housing and homelessness. And I think your next guest, Kirk Williamson, will have um, something to share uh, in that regard. Well, we look forward to that. And we also thank you for taking some time to be with us. Karen Hayes, part of the Community Health Needs Assessment Team that uh, has collaborated to put this uh, important document in front of us. And certainly one of the roles that we want to play with this program is to provide education on on how it can impact uh, positively in our community. And again, if you want more information on the health needs assessment, go to the Health District's website at bfhd.wa.gov. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Cadillac On Call presented by the Cadillac Foundation and Healthcare has a lot of acronyms, and health has a lot of acronyms in them. And so we're throwing a couple more at your way tonight. One of them is called CHNA, which is Community Health Needs Assessment. And we're just concluding ours here in the Benton-Franklin County area through a wide array of data points that were gathered over the last nine months or so. And it's really providing some very telling information about the real priority health needs that we have in Benton and Franklin counties. And I want to welcome to the program Kirk Williamson, who is the program manager of the one of the partners of this endeavor, and that's the Benton-Franklin Community Health Alliance. And, and Kirk, we touched on these four priorities that have been identified being behavioral health, housing and homelessness, access to health, and then partnership developments within our community. Um, maybe if you would, you know, we talked about how they all seem to have connections. And uh, is that what you're seeing? Is that kind of the takeaway you, you've gotten from this during your career and life in the Tri-Cities? 
Yes, exactly, Jim, and it's good to be with you this evening. The um, thing about the interconnectedness of all these things is something called social determinants of health, and those are the things that affect uh, have about 80% of the effect on how you live and how long you live and how well you live that are not the kind of things that the hospital or the doctor's office can really have much impact on. Things like transportation. Can you get to the doctor's office and back or to a clinic? Can you, uh, are you having trouble with drugs? Do you live in a stable household? Do you uh, have a roof over your head? All of those things are things that are called the social determinants of health. They go even so far as are there decent parks where you can safely walk and exercise and do the kinds of things outdoors that are that we all know are good for people. So this survey really tells us where the priorities are in terms of looking at those social determinants of health and how they affect the way people live. We talked a little bit about uh, homelessness, and I think that's one of the perfect examples. Why are people homeless? Well, if you ask 100 people why they're homeless, you're going to get 100 different reasons why they're homeless and and what their what their aspirations are and what it might take to get them under a roof. And those things are the things that we're going to try to uh, try to look at in the Tri-Cities and see if we can't figure out how to get ahead of the homelessness problem before it turns into Seattle or Portland. Spokane. We know that as those bigger cities do things to force people out, they're going to wind up in smaller communities like this one and Yakima. And, and I, we, we want to be able to handle that in such a way that humanely and honorably so that people are not living on the street under the bridge or camping out in, at Columbia Point or in Columbia Park. That big fire we had at Columbia Point a couple of years ago pretty clearly started in a homeless camp. So those are the kind of things we'd like to avoid. You touched on that, and and, and our plan over the next couple of months as this evolves is to spend more time on each of these priorities that have been identified. But a quick question, if you would, on the homelessness situation. Is it it worse than people probably realize in the Tri-Cities area? Yeah, there are two ways to count homelessness. Uh, one of them is what they call the point in time or pit survey. And they literally bundle up a bunch of volunteers and send them out with a clipboard to count the number of volunteers on a particular evening in January. And you can imagine the limitations of that kind of, a, uh, of an enterprise. The other is to count the number of people who show up at uh, city or county facilities uh, asking for help to get a roof over their heads or to get shelter. Well, those two numbers are way apart in almost every community, including this one. So where's the right number? Well, it's probably more than the higher of those two numbers. We just don't know. Um, if you start talking to school district people, is a homeless person someone who couch surfs because they don't really have a place of their own, but they spend all their time surfing from one couch to another? That's, is that a definition of homelessness? Well, I think the most of us, it probably is. 
are people living in their cars that homelessness or I mean, they have a roof over their head. So those are the kind of things that you have to think about as you think about what is the broad range of homelessness. We don't usually see them where they sleep. We see them when they're on the street corner asking for help to get dinner or food or, or whatever other things they need. Interesting, and I was going to say, we just have a minute or so left, and I, I just we've just scratched the surface on this, but I think it illustrates that uh, as these are, th- I guess, three-year uh, assessments that are done, but clearly it's going to take more than three years to even probably scratch the surface on any one of these issues, but the important point is to identify them and then start tackling them and identify ways to make progress. Is that right? Well, that, that's part of the reason for the fourth priority that uh, that we laid out, which is building new partnerships. This is These are not problems that we yield to the health district or to uh, any particular organization. What they will yield to eventually is a community-wide effort to bring all of our brains and resources to the table to address those problems. Well, it's fascinating information, and I look forward to it. And I know real quickly, uh, it's not till February, but... Uh, the Badger Club that I know you're actively involved in is going to be addressing these in, in large portion in February. Do you have a date set yet? Yeah, February 23rd, we're going to do a two-hour special uh, Badger Forum, and one of our guests will be Rufus Friday, <laughs> who was publisher of the Tri-City Herald and is now in Lexington running a uh, big homeless program there. Is it going to be in person, pray tell? It, it will be <laughs> Don't I wish? No, it will be on Zoom. (laughs) But it'll be just as important and just as uh, impactful, I'm sure. Kirk, thanks so much. We'll uh, certainly share more information on that as that date draws near and more on this larger CHNA on this program also in the coming months. And again, more information on the health needs assessment can be found at the Health District's website, bfhd.wa.gov. Our thanks to all of our guests, and thank you for listening. We'll talk again next week. 